Good morning, friends. It's good to be back at Sandy Ridge this morning. <clears throat> good morning, Josh. We come from the same province, we work for the same employer, but we very seldom see each other. So we have to come to Indiana to see you. We greet you in the name of Jesus. It's good to be here. And I pray that the truth of God's word would speak to my heart and your heart this morning. I was drawn to the words of Jesus in John chapter 12. You can turn there. And in this familiar passage, I believe there's, there is a simple principle of truth that Jesus was speaking about his own life, but he was also um, establishing this principle for us to consider as well. I mentioned it's a familiar passage. I think the last time I was here, um, or the last time I preached here, I made a rather apologetic remark about preaching from a familiar passage. And I, the Lord has been working on me in the last couple of years. I just want to apologize for doing that, and, and more importantly, for the motives that prompted it. Because more and more I'm seeing how preachers can be moved, this one anyway, can be moved by, by pride and fear in, in so many ways. And personally, I don't, I'm not speaking for other preachers, but I like to find a fresh thought. I like to find something, oh, I, I enjoy finding an Old Testament passage that's sort of obscure maybe, and then, and then uh, speaking to some insight from that. But when I felt directed to preach from a very well-known text, um, I made some apologetic comment about it. And, and probably most of you don't remember that, but I think there's one brother here who does. And a faithful brother came up to me after in a very appropriate and gracious way. He just um, expressed a concern that don't apologize for preaching familiar scripture. Brother Mark, I don't know if you remember doing that, but I thank you. And uh, the Lord used that to remind me and humble me. I've thought about it many, many times since then. So this morning, without apology, I invite you to a familiar passage in John chapter 12. My title is The Loneliness of Self-Preservation. We're going to break in partway through this chapter, but before we do that, I'd like to try to establish a bit of context. In, in John chapter 11, the previous chapter, we have the account of Jesus' friend Lazarus who fell ill, and they sent a message to Jesus to come and heal him, but Jesus delayed until after Lazarus had died. When he arrived, both of his sisters said the same thing to Jesus. They said, Lord, if you had been here, our brother hadn't died. And Jesus went to the tomb, and there he showed them his power and his glory. He raised Lazarus back to life by the power of God. And in response to this miracle, a couple things happened. It says that many of the Jews who came to be with Mary and Martha believed on him. So it stirred, it was that final um, proof, perhaps, that final evidence that this was the Son of God. So many believed on him. But those who didn't, many others also went, and they told the Pharisees and the chief priests what had happened. And from that day forward, they began to plot against him, to plot his death. They wanted him dead for a long time, but now they actively began planning. So Jesus withdrew, and he didn't walk openly among the Jews for a time. 
And just remember that backstory when we come into chapter 12. Well, in the opening of chapter 12, then, Jesus comes back to Bethany. Before the Passover, he hadn't withdrawn for fear of the Jews, but because he was sensitive to God's timing, and now also he was sensitive to God's timing. Now it was time. He comes to Bethany, and they make a supper for him at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And in this passage, then, we read about Mary anointing his feet. And then as we move into the next day, it says Jesus left Bethany, and we have John's rather brief account of his triumphant entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And we're going to break in in chapter 12, verse 16, which is just after that. Um, after the, the uh, brief account of the triumphal entry. Verse 16 of John chapter 12. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause, the people also met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the whole world is gone after him. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not for Sorry, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. How sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have the light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus, and departed, and did hide himself from them. We're going to cease reading there. 
Like I said earlier, the, the miracle that was performed in Bethany when Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave had really, really got their attention. And there was a sense in which it seemed this miracle crystallized the response of people toward him. This question of who is Jesus now, um, it, it required a response. They could no longer carry on with, with some indifference toward it. It became more and more difficult to be ambivalent about Jesus. That point of decision was very important for the people. But from a human perspective, it was very dangerous for Jesus. A non-committal response, indecision about the identity of Christ was actually safer for him. People were willing to just let things go. But when they had decided either for or against him, it, it represented a danger to him. When the scribes and Pharisees were settled or when, they, when this, this issue was crystallized in their minds, and they, they chose outright rejection of Christ, then they began to plot his death. And it was in the midst of that that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And again, in verse 20, in the midst of that, that tension that was there, I don't think we can quite understand how it was in Jerusalem at that time, but into the midst of that tension, Jesus came, and then we have these Greeks coming to Philip and, and to Andrew. And they said, well, they came to Philip first, and they said, we would see Jesus. And Philip tells Andrew, and together they go tell Jesus. Now, in the end, we aren't actually told if they, if they had the opportunity to meet him. I, I tend to believe that they were honest seekers, and so I think Jesus did take the time to meet them, probably. But his response to the question is interesting. He answered them saying, so this is in response to, say, to hearing that these, these Greeks wanted to see him. Jesus said, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, this is a little bit of my interpretation here, but I think he was saying that the, the hour has come when I won't only be sought out by a few Greeks, but the hour is coming when the whole world will seek after. I will be publicly revealed, I'll be glorified as the promised Messiah. He was to be lifted up before the whole world the only Lamb of God whose blood would be shed for the remission of sins. And if Jesus had been satisfied with the approval of the people, then there would have been no need for him to die. But his mission and his entire purpose for coming went far beyond that. And he alludes to that purpose in verses 24 and 25. And these verses represent the burden for the message this morning. We're not really going to go through the rest of the text verse by verse, but it's these verses that I want you to think about. On this verse... Sorry, on the surface, his words seem a little uh, abstract, perhaps, to us. But ponder what he said. Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this comes in the context of, of him saying that, that he was going to be glorified. And then he said, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. And from that, I'm taking my title, The Loneliness of Self-Preservation. 
I believe Jesus spoke these words in reference to his own sacrificial death, which he knew was to come, but there was a lesson in it for us as well. Truly, truly, except a kernel or a grain of wheat, or we would say a seed, fall into the ground and die, it's going to abide alone. This idea of alone is, is not just the thing of being by myself, but it, it remains singular, it remains unfruitful, it remains unproductive, lonely. But if it die, it's going to bring forth much fruit. If it's planted, if it's buried, if it decays, it will be the seed that springs new life. And he expands that thought in the following verse. He presents the paradox. He that loveth his life shall lose it. But he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Those who love their lives, those who seek to protect themselves, those who are selfishly careless, sorry, selfishly careful about their life, about all their possessions, self-preservation will end in loss. But death to self is part of the path to eternal life. So this morning I just encourage you to, con to uh, think about and to ponder the concepts of death to self, self-preservation, loneliness versus fruitfulness as we consider the loneliness of self-preservation. You understand what Jesus is saying here. There were these Greeks, they had heard about him, they wanted to see him, but it's almost like he said, so there's people that want to see me. Indeed, they and all people, they shall see me indeed. The hour has come that the Son of Man will be glorified. But he wouldn't be glorified through praise and popularity. That's not how it was going to happen. His glorification was about to come through death. He implied that the door to glory required death. Without death, he wasn't going to accomplish the Father's plan. Without death, he would abide alone, singular, rather than multiplying. He might preserve his physical body. He could have done that, but in doing so, there would be no body as we know it today. His body, the church, the fellowship of believers, followers and fellow citizens in the heavenly kingdom would not happen unless the seed was planted. But he said, if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So fruitfulness and fulfillment and bountiful reward followed after, but the seed first needed to be planted. The joy of harvest, obviously, does not happen without the sacrifice of planting. And maybe we don't really think about it in those terms, the sacrifice of planting, but I just ask you to think with me about that. And probably we can picture it better about what planting was like then, more than the large commercial scale that we see it today with treated seeds sold by um, bags or in bulk amounts. But think about it more as a, as a small farmer who would have a small quantity of grain and I'm not a farmer, so maybe, I hope my context here doesn't get all messed up, but when you have a kernel of wheat, or what do you call it? A kernel? Any farmers here? What would you call it? Okay, a kernel of wheat. As long as it's stored properly, 
the right conditions, it retained its value in several ways, right? It could be ground into flour or used as feed rations for livestock, or it could be planted as seed. That's the same kernel of wheat. Farmers, have I got that part right? Okay, thank you. And if he's not a farmer, I'm looking at the wrong man, but I won't say who nodded his head. That's where the sacrifice of planting comes in. In my mind, when I think about this, I always go back to the, the um, um, what's the series called? Little House on the Prairie, or that, that whole series. And remember the story? Uh, I don't remember which book it was, but Sherry used to read these to the children. I remember hearing it in school, and how Almanzo had this, he had grain stored in his granary in, in their store, whatever they had, and and the Ingalls family was almost out of food. And, and Paul went to Almanzo, and he, he begged him, or he asked him to sell him some grain. And he took what was his, his seed, seed store for the next year. Remember, he pulled a knot out of the, the wall behind. This is what I picture. I might have it all wrong. And he sold him some of that wheat that he had. The point I'm trying to make is that seed... In essence, it has to be sacrificed if you're putting it in the ground. You can't change your mind later and a week later and say, oh, you know what, I really should have kept that and go back and find it all. Well, you might be able to find it, but if there's any moisture at all, it's too late. It's not an easy decision in times of need. When, when things are difficult and the promise of a good crop is far from certain, question of harvest is, is rather unlikely. It is not an easy decision to take that which is safely stored and good and valuable and bury it in the ground in the hopes of a crop to come several months down the road. And I thought of this in relation to, you know, we just get the high-level stories coming out of the Ukraine, but I think about farmers there, and what it, it must have been a difficult decision this spring. Am I going to plant with the costs involved? And I don't know if there'll be a harvest, or I don't know if I'll be here to harvest it. Maybe I'm just planting it for the enemy to come. We kind of forget that context here in, in the way things are in North America. But to take something that which has value for food, which my family might need, and bury it in the ground and hope of a harvest later. It is a sacrifice. We often think of planting as a time of hope and joy, but there is also sacrifice. And I wonder if there wasn't some reference to this in Psalm 126, where it says that they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. That seed, that kernel of wheat has value as it is. But in order to be really effective, in order to, to reach its, its greatest potential, to be truly useful, it must be sacrificed in the sense of put into the ground. It must be, must be buried. Like I said, you're not going to go a week later and, and dig it back up again. But in order for it not to remain alone, it needs to be planted. And so Jesus said, in reference to this, he said, he that loves his life, he that clings to that which he has, is going to lose it. 
But he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. All right. So, are you with me here? Jesus taught this truth with reference to his own life, his own suffering and death, and the glory that awaited him. But this, this truth represents a principle of Scripture, and it applies to each of us today. John Piper wrote that this is the truth that Jesus reveals to the Greeks, but now also it became a truth unto them and about us. Jesus' self-revelation self is always a confrontation. When Jesus reveals something about himself. It is always a confrontation or it is a, it is a challenge to us. He says in verses 25 and 26, My dying for your salvation is also my design for you to imitate. If you want to see me, as he said to these Greeks, if you want to see me, be prepared to become like me. He that loves his life is going to lose it. He that hateth his life shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, now he's, he's, he's applying it to them. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall my servants be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Like I said, he established a principle for life that applied for them and for us today. So think about this. Love for God that results in a generous planting and death to self, that is the path to fruitfulness. But conversely, the path of self-preservation, that's my title about the loneliness of self-preservation, that path leads to loneliness, leads to loss and, and a lack of fulfillment in life. I think about the rich young ruler. Jesus said, one thing thou lackest, sell everything that you have and come and follow me and give it away and come follow me or however he worded that. But it was too much to ask. And the rich young ruler left sorrowful because he wasn't willing to do it. He chose the path of self-preservation. He clung to what he had. And it resulted in his not being fruitful. He was, that seed remained alone. He didn't know fulfillment. Self-preservation is much more than simply guarding our physical lives. That's the first thing we think of. And, and there's an element to that that is healthy and right. God gave us our, our lives. He gave us our bodies. We are responsible to take care of them. Careful, carelessness about our own safety and our own well-being is, is not a way to honor God. But unhealthy self-preservation can easily creep in. And it becomes a way of life if you're not careful. And it begins to impact almost every decision the person makes. It affects our relationships and how we interact with other people. And it totally changes our outlook on life. How we view opportunities or challenges that we face. That unwillingness to be like Jesus, to die for others, that resistance to sacrificial love. In other words, that decision to hide and to save my seed rather than planting it in faith. Those choices, they're not just choices that we make. They're driven by, by motives deep within. And as I observe situations, as I look at my own life, I think choices of self-preservation are usually driven by one of two underlying motives. The one is pride and the other is fear. And if 
In the end, those would boil right down to one motive, but that's another message and we won't go there. When we are proud, we choose to accumulate. We, we pursue more grasp. We're selfish with our time. Pride drives us in those ways. When we're driven by fear, it looks a little different, but the results are almost the same. That self-preservation rises to the surface. In an effort to avoid pain or hardship, we seek to control our situations. Fear and control almost always go together. So we seek to accumulate because it's about controlling situations. We cling tightly, we protect, we control, we guard carefully, we're careful what commitments we make and what time we invest. And those all stand in opposition to unselfish love. And it happens in the world, and it happens in the church. Either way, there will be a reaping. Whether it is a bountiful harvest or whether it is a lonely harvest, there will be a reaping. So the question for you and I, are you sowing generously? Does love for God and love for others and care for others motivate you to plant generously, to take your seeds and scatter them? To abandon that fearful need for control? Yes, this includes finances, but it is so much more than money. In fact, I, I sometimes think it is easier for us to be generous with money than it is with our time or our energy. Or our passion. Are you living generously? What happens when there is a need or an opportunity to serve? How readily will you take on added responsibility for the kingdom, whether it's in the church here or some other way? How willingly will you sacrifice your leisure time or your comfort to do that? What if that opportunity cuts into, I don't know what it is for you here, your tea time maybe, or your, I meant that tea as in a golfing tea, but maybe it's, Maybe it's uh, tea time as well, I don't know. Or your camping time, or your hunting time, or your fishing time. Or... Maybe there's no interference like that. Maybe, maybe the need or the opportunity just looks too big. I've watched it over and over. People shrink back in self-preservation. They don't, they don't think it's self-preservation, but that's what it is. Because they aren't sure if they can handle whatever that responsibility might involve. And it is fear-based decisions. And I can say that because I know what that's like. We don't want to put, be put in a place. If I say yes to that, I might be put in a place where I can't handle it. I might be pure vulnerable or I might, I might not be able to do it. Self-preservation drives a lot of decisions that we make. If we're not understanding our own hearts and motives. And I can't make every application for you this morning, but in the end, I would simply ask, what does the pattern of your life choices show? Is it evident? And I believe it will be evident one way or the other. Are you planting generously? Are you that kind of person? Are you courageously giving away that seed, scattering it? Or do you carefully measure your time commitments for the Lord and the church are you a willing servant who can reschedule and sacrifice 
in order to be of service to the kingdom? Or are you the kind of person that people are almost afraid to ask because you'll probably be too busy anyway? I said this happens all the time in the world. I'm getting back now to the idea of the loneliness of self-preservation. I'm thinking of a man in our community and uh, he's a non-Christian man. He's actually a Jehovah's Witness man. My son works for him. And overall, he's a good boss. Treats him fairly well. He's a very wealthy man. But I think maybe he's a better businessman than he is a Jehovah's Witness. And he enjoys his snowmobiling. He enjoys his golfing trips. And he likes to tell his employees about his escapades. But he tells his employees about them because he doesn't have any friends to tell. And you know what happens? As they are working till 5 on Friday so he can go snowmobiling with his $25,000 sled and their $2,500 sleds are sitting there till after work when they might be able to afford the gas to go riding. It doesn't go over real well. It doesn't go over real well. His selfish choices are breeding resentment and bitterness among those that he thinks are his friends. He's a lonely man and he's headed for a lonely retirement when when the business is in the hands of others, I'm not sure who he's going to spend time with anymore. He has everything he'd want, and he can afford more. But it's been focused inward, and it's resulting in loneliness, and it will be greater loneliness to come. We see it in cases where people have been too busy for their children, or maybe didn't even want to have children, and they, they end up, as we're starting to see this more, I think, we go into the sing at the resident, old people's residence at home, and there's people that they almost never get visitors. Why? Well, it could be everybody else's fault. But people that have poured their life into the lives of others tend to have people coming to see them later as well. That's the world. But it happens in the church as well. It can even happen in Christian service. I've watched two men I can think about that engaged in very similar ministry activities. And one poured himself into that work with passion and he actively invested in the lives around him and came after time of service, weary and exhausted, but his life was full. It was enriched, and many other lives were touched. Another guarded his time, guarded his emotional investment carefully. That carefulness wasn't attractive to those around him. Hurting people didn't find that safe or approachable. And he came home less weary, less exhausted, 
but more empty as well. Friends, this morning, Jesus said, we can make that choice. He that saveth his life shall lose it. There's a lot of ways to save your life. It's more than just preserving your physical life. It, it comes into a lot of practical things, and we cling to that which we have or that which we care about. We selfishly, carefully guard our interests, and we end up lonelier for it. But Jesus said, whoever shall hate his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. The greatest proof of this was in the example of Jesus. In the verses we read, he said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. That, that act of sacrifice, Jesus giving his life, was the greatest single attraction that mankind has ever seen. And today, we still are drawn to him because of that. Are we living that kind of lives? It will be worth it all. We can live selfishly today. But the only reward you have is today. If you live unselfishly, if you're willing to be used and spent for the kingdom, there will be much fruit and God will be glorified. Let's kneel together for prayer. Father, I thank you for giving and sending your Son. And I thank you that Jesus was willing to be used up and wasted for me. I thank you that in giving his life, being lifted up on the cross, his words were fulfilled and he is to this day drawing and inviting all men unto him. As we bow before you this morning, Lord, I pray that you would search our hearts and help us to be honest about our motives, honest about the pride or the fear that drives us to self-preservation in relationships, in your work, in your kingdom, in the church, with our families. Father, I pray that you would show us and then give us courage to be willing to commit to selfless love for you. And I thank you that even though it seems impossible, you make it, you make it worthwhile. And the rewards for selfless living are unspeakable. Give us a vision for that kind of usefulness in your work in your kingdom. Give us eyes to see and understand the opportunities that surround us. Help us to love like you love and to give ourselves freely 
in response to what you've done for us. Thank you for each one here. I ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.